This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, March 9th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Popular notions about the U.S.-Mexico border are in some cases flat-out wrong. So says Democratic Congressman Beto O'Rourke. He says his city, El Paso, Texas, is among the safest in the U.S. We discussed the border and the war on drugs last week. Last year you ran a race on the border. Um, what was the goal? I think the goal was to bring more attention and focus and people literally to the border to see it for themselves. Um, the border has been characterized in any number of ways, mostly negative, uh, as a source of anxiety, of fear. Uh, some presidential candidates have called it the point at which Mexican rapists cross into the United States to actually come and be in El Paso. And in this 10K race that started in downtown El Paso, ran through our community, crossed one of the international bridges into Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, and went through that community and then finished on the international line, was to see the world's largest functioning binational community, three million people living for the most part in harmony, economically, familially, culturally, historically interconnected, unlike any two people anywhere else. And at least on the U.S. side, El Paso, the safest large city in the United States, the safest city with a population over 500,000 in the country, um, really very much a magical place that doesn't exist anywhere else. And we had about 1,000 participants, many of them from uh, other parts of the United States and Mexico, uh, and some of them the first time that they were seeing the border, including journalists. So, so our desire was for the, the story of the border to be told accurately based on someone's physical presence there, seeing it for themselves. And, and I think when the story is told that way, it's largely positive and a reflection of what I see every day in that community. Now, you make this point a lot that Juarez and El Paso are the same community. What is that? How does that function? There are ways to measure it. Uh, about $90 billion in U.S.-Mexico trade flows through the ports of entry that join um, our two communities in our two countries. There is a massive industrial maquila sector in Juarez employing hundreds of thousands of Juarenses. On the El Paso side, in support of that manufacturing sector. Uh, There's a huge service and logistics sector. Uh, It's estimated that one out of every four jobs in El Paso is connected to that U.S.-Mexico trade. In addition, Mexican nationals from Juarez spend about a billion and a half in our local retail economy uh, every year. Uh, For many shops, especially in South and downtown El Paso, 80 to 90 percent of their customers are going to come from Ciudad Juarez. Those are the things that we can measure. Uh, You would add to that that there were 30 million verified crossings between the two cities last year, 30 million, which just blows my mind. Uh, And that is um, kids in El Paso visiting their grandmothers in Juarez. Juarez uh, students coming to the University of Texas at El Paso, where they're treated as in-state for tuition purposes. You wouldn't expect that from the state of Texas, but in fact, uh, that's one of our hallmarks when it comes to being smart about the border and about uh, Mexico. Um, But there are immeasurable connections, uh, like the fact that families are spread across both sides of that border. We share a very common 
culture and history that is neither purely American nor purely Mexican. It's, it's something very unique that has developed there. You could almost say um, there's a version of English and Spanish that are unique to uh, our region. If you look at us from a map, uh, geographically, the nearest large U.S. city is Albuquerque, New Mexico, about a five-hour drive to the north. And the other nearest city is Chihuahua, Mexico, about a five-hour drive to the south. So we've, we've really been dependent on each other and grown together for the entire history of our, of our two communities. So again, something very special that you're not likely to see, not just anywhere else in the U.S., just not anywhere else in the world. The debate about immigration has changed over the past year. Uh, a year and a half ago, the debate was about visas, about which groups uh, would get more visas and which groups would not. Today, the debate is, oh, is at least starts with whether or not to build a wall. And if you want to build a wall, how high to build that wall? Having observed this mostly on the Republican side, what's your uh, take? I always start with, with the facts, and um, I look at what we are currently doing on the border. We're, we're spending about $18 billion a year um, to ensure that the border is secure and to protect this homeland very successfully, I might add. Uh, I had confirmation from the Secretary of Homeland Security, the director of the National Counterterrorism Center, the director of the FBI, that there is not now, nor has there ever been, a terrorist plot to infiltrate the United States from the southern border. There's never been a successful terrorist crossing. Um, there's never been a terrorist organization that has focused on uh, that as a point of entry in the United States. It doesn't mean we shouldn't remain vigilant. And I tell you that $18 billion is uh, a lot of vigilance. But we're approaching a point of diminishing returns where 10 years ago, in 2005, 2006, the average Border Patrol agent along the southern border apprehended well over 100 people coming north. Um, last year, in 2015, that number in the El Paso sector was down to six. For the entire year, a Border Patrol agent paid for by the U.S. taxpayer is apprehending on average six people the entire year. And that's because we have more than doubled spending in the last 10 years. We have more than doubled the size of the force from around 10,000 to over 20,000. And the danger beyond the cost to the taxpayer and other priorities within the federal budget and growing the size of the deficit and the debt is that we may be taking our eye off the ball where it comes to threats that we know exist today, our international airports, our northern border with Canada, which has been exploited in the past, homegrown terrorists who are radicalized by the internet uh, or other media from terrorists uh, abroad. Uh, so um, I would go back to Republicans, Democrats, independents alike, and say, look, if, if you're truly concerned about security, and I'll take you at your word, it's not going to come by spending even billions more at the southern border. It is going to uh, mean spending more intelligently where we have proven risks and threats, retaining our vigilance uh, at the border, but being a lot smarter about how we interdict and apprehend those who would do us harm. And so I, I would meet that national security argument at its face and turn it to where I think we can do the most good with limited resources. What has been the biggest misconception about our southern border and our attempts at economic integration with Mexico? I was recently talking with a colleague, a Democrat, about uh, 
we were talking to each other about what we were going to do over the weekend when we returned to our districts. And I said, well, I've, I've got a, a, a friend who's running for a political office. I'm going to probably go knock on some doors uh, for her uh, this weekend. And he said, that, that's got to be really tough living in El Paso. I mean, do you need to have a, an armed guard with you at all times? Do you need to carry a weapon? His, his um, impression, in other words, of El Paso is, is a very dangerous place uh, and seemed to have unwittingly bought into the, the same myth that someone like Donald Trump capitalizes on, which is that the, the border with Mexico is an ungoverned, lawless, chaotic, dangerous place. The facts tell us a very different story. In my own life experience, having lived there for the last 43 years and raising my three children there, it is proven to be the safest city in America, not just this last year, but for the prior four years uh, to that. And it's also not an outlier. When you look at the U.S. side of the U.S.-Mexico border, it is far safer than the average U.S. city. And we seem to find a correlation, if not, I would argue, I think there might be causation between the preponderance of immigrant families. And in El Paso, uh, 24 to 25% of the population was born in another country with that community's safety. And, and I anecdotalize it to this. Uh, if I've come to the United States, to El Paso, Texas, from another country, I am interested in doing better because I came to this country at great cost to myself financially, emotionally, familially. Uh, I want to get ahead, and more importantly, I want my kids to get ahead and to do well. And in order to do that, I'm going to follow the laws. Uh, I'm going to make sure that I stay on my kids to do well in school and in work and to contribute to the community in which we now live. That, to me, is the story of El Paso and the successful, positive story of immigration that you're not going to hear on the campaign trail. And I found from talking to a Democrat who I would have assumed uh, was sensitive to this, that unless you're living on the border or have spent enough time there, it's hard to believe that. It just It's counterintuitive from what we have been hearing for a very long time. And just quickly, one last point to show you how difficult it is to run against the prevailing wisdom on this, we looked at newspaper headlines from the early 1980s in El Paso, and you had screaming headlines about uh, suspected Libyan terror plot in Ciudad Juarez. We, we have always projected our fears and anxieties on the southern border. Uh, it's ISIS and al-Qaeda today. It was Libyan terrorists in the 1980s. It was, you know, dope traffickers uh, prior to that. Um, I don't know how you combat that other than using the facts, other than bringing people to our community. And that race, to go back to your first question, was our novel way of trying to do that. Now, on that note, you've, you've noted that San Diego, uh, another border city, is the second safest or has been recently the second safest large city yeah. uh, in America. And you've invited Donald Trump to come down to the border to see for himself from the perspective of folks who live there, um, is there any chance that he'll take you up on that? I, I don't know. He, he visited the southern border. I think he was in Laredo or, or McAllen uh, last year. And the, um, you know, the drama that he uh, drummed up around it was, uh, I'm going to take my life into my own hands because I won't have Border Patrol protection to, to go visit. Um, he and others, uh, and it's not just Donald Trump. I mean, I think he is in a long line of national leaders 
who stoke anxiety and fear around the border because it is so intuitive. It makes so much sense to us that another people who speak a different language, who look differently than we do, who are connected to the rest of the world, pose a threat to us. That, that just makes intuitive sense. And the challenge is that the facts just don't and have never really borne that out. And counterintuitively, Mexico is uh, the source and the engine of so much positive growth economically and demographically uh, to this country. It is estimated that every minute of delay at our international ports of entry with Mexico, where U.S.-bound trade uh, is waiting to enter this country, costs the U.S. economy $166 million per minute. Six million jobs nationwide depend on trade with Mexico. Mexico, unlike almost any other trading partner, has tremendous U.S. value in what it exports to our country. So when we export to Mexico, we obviously win. When we import from Mexico, up to 40 percent of the content of Mexican imports originated here. So I get to tell my colleagues from Michigan, the factory floor jobs that you represent in Detroit are dependent on a healthy functioning border in El Paso, Texas. So if you simply assume that Mexico is a threat and wall it off and get to 100 percent security, you will, by definition, stop or severely undermine trade, which will affect jobs in unemployment rates and economic growth in your community. So making that connection that the border is important, not just for those of us who live in El Paso, but for those who live in Detroit or Nashville or Atlanta or anywhere else around the country. That's a office-by-office office conversation that we're having to have, uh, and it's going to take some time to, to begin to change minds around that. The nativist impulse uh, regarding uh, immigration isn't limited to the Republican Party. In fact, Bernie Sanders has been fairly outspoken that he would have a, a more restrictive immigration policy than uh, a lot of free marketeers might prefer. Yeah, you know— you're absolutely right. And and I always try to not associate um, difficulties in improving conditions along the U.S.-Mexico border and improving opportunities for uh, our immigration system and reforming it and bringing more people lawfully and um, logically and rationally in, into this country on one party or, or one person. It, it really is a, I think, a reflection of this country's priorities. And you hear it from Republicans and you hear it from Democrats. And if I'm correct, I believe uh, Senator Sanders was opposed to prior efforts to reform our, our immigration system for concern that it would harm American workers. Is that a legitimate concern? Yes, but it is not necessarily mutually exclusive to finding a way to bring people into this country who are going to be productive contributors and net assets to communities like Washington, D.C. or, uh, or El Paso, for that matter. Um, I don't know what it will take to actually produce success on this. You have you know, every single Democratic House member— uh, signed on to immigration reform. You have, uh, I think, the critical number of Republican House members publicly saying that they support that. If you could get those two numbers together, uh, you could almost sign something through a discharge petition onto the floor. But there are some national politics and local congressional district politics at play. And I think it, it is in need of 
greater leadership uh, at the, the speaker level, at the presidential level, um, to create the space to allow people to do what they know is right and what uh, many cases I think increasingly their constituents are asking them to do even in Republican-leaning districts. The, the prospects, though, for immigration reform seem to be worse than they have been in a really long time. George W. Bush seemed to have a fairly reasonable uh, reform, wanted to do it, had a good relationship with Vicente Fox. And uh, sort of uh, the nativist wing of the Republican Party sort of shut that down. Democrats had control of the White House and both chambers of Congress and didn't do anything. Right. And here we are at a, at a time when the Republican frontrunner is somebody who's, who would veto any attempt to liberalize immigration. Yeah, I, I've often wondered what what will be the precipitating event. Will there be uh, some crisis, um, some issue to which Congress must react that will include a reform to our immigration system? I, I can't imagine what that would be. Or, as you suggest, will it be the opportunity for a, a president or a national leader who has uh, political capital at the outset of an administration that they can use? And you, you really get one or two big projects. And, you know, President Reagan was somebody who had the political capital and skills and partners on the other side to pursue immigration reform. Uh, President W. Bush uh, did not. Uh, President Obama uh, elected to pursue health care. Uh, and and uh, to a degree, it is a limited sum game. So it was health care at the cost of other priorities. And I would include in those other priorities that were not selected, immigration reform. And as a consequence, uh, and you can debate whether that was the right priority, but as a consequence, you know, uh, almost uh, at the end of his administration, we are nowhere closer apart from his executive actions to any kind of change in the system. What federal laws ought to change with respect to drugs that uh, would ease tensions at the border? This is a tough one because it, it's clear to me that if the United States were to end its prohibition on marijuana and in, in a rational, effective way and safe for the most vulnerable among us, I'm thinking kids especially, were to regulate and control its sale, um, it would improve, I think, by extension, the situation in Mexico. It would not solve that. And, you know, sometimes uh, folks will set up a straw man argument and say, well, that's not going to be the silver bullet that will end the chapos of the world. And I, I certainly agree. But I, I think to a large degree, marijuana is still the, the cornerstone product of these cartel empires. Uh, the cartels control almost the entire uh, production and distribution cycle from growing to storing to controlling the plazas in places like uh, Ciudad Juarez to increasingly the distribution networks in the United States. And that Solid, consistent revenue helps fund the impunity that we saw in cities like Ciudad Juarez, uh, the ability to recruit young people into the ranks of these cartels, to bribe public officials and police, and to arm themselves uh, in, in an outsized way relative to what the, the government of Mexico can field and certainly the, the local police. And El Chapo's arrests make, has no impact on that. I, I, I really would question whether that's going to fundamentally change anything in uh, in Mexico, in the drug war. Uh, but we've seen reductions in marijuana coming into the United States 
Do you, you think that's driven by legalization in the states that have done so? I, I don't know. I would only be able to speculate. But, but at, at this point, um, after Colorado, after Washington, after uh, half the states in the union through some kind of democratic process and some in a very direct democratic process have said uh, the drug war was a well-intentioned good idea, but it has not worked. And we either at some level want to medicinalize, decriminalize, or outright legalize marijuana. It's clear that it's only going in one direction in this country. And to, you know, paraphrase John Kerry when he was talking about the Vietnam War, you know, who is the last kid in Ciudad Juarez who's going to be killed to bring a load of marijuana into the United States uh, long after we've known that it will one day fully be legal in this country? So, I think the onus is now on us at the federal level um, to take the necessary step uh, rather than wait state by state by state to get there. Um, the public has spoken, and, and you could poll it. What are those steps? Um, I, I, th I think that we would look to um, what happened after uh, we ended the prohibition of alcohol and what the regime needs to be to effectively regulate and control the sale of marijuana, which I would argue we could do a much, a much better job than we're doing today of keeping it out of the hands of kids in schoolyards where we know today drug dealers don't ask for ID uh, and the most vulnerable are not, not uh, protected, uh, and ensure that um, the rule of law is honored in the United States, that what is being sold here and the wealth that's being created around it is taxed, uh, and that there is the appropriate level of public health spending and focus to build upon successes that we've had around tobacco, where in the same 40 years that we've seen just about zero change in teenage use of marijuana. The only change has been that marijuana has become more potent and there are more kids selling it and more of them are packing heat in the process of doing so. In those same 40 years, we've seen precipitous declines in the use of tobacco amongst kids and teenagers. So there are some lessons to be learned from other highly regulated and controlled drugs uh, and uh, substances like tobacco. Is, the, uh, is changing the Controlled Substances Act part of that? I think so, yeah. T changing the scheduling, changing the, the Controlled uh, Substances Act. Um, making common sense changes in our banking system to allow those uh, enterprises that today are already legal under state laws to participate in the national banking system. Yeah, the, the New York Times recently had a story about people who run dispensaries in Colorado. They have to hire armed guards, and they're often carrying hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash, and they're not bankable. They cannot get a bank account if that bank's chartered in multiple states. It's ridiculous. And, and I also, from I'm not an attorney, but from my limited understanding of how this works, today um, there's an exercise in prosecutorial discretion from this administration about how federal marijuana laws are administered or enforced in uh, communities in states like Colorado. So should Congress then— So I don't then... know what a next president would do. You know, would a next president try to enforce that? And I think to— um, rid ourselves of that concern, uh, we need to take a federal step, uh, which I think ultimately is to end prohibition and do it again in, I think, the most thoughtful, effective, rational way possible, but nonetheless to do it. Um, I, I think it, it, we, we could also talk about this when it comes to immigration. When the federal government does not act 
on a pressing national priority, states and local governments act. They're doing it on immigration. They're doing it when it comes to marijuana law. That should be a clear indication to us that we're not doing our job. And there could be some some real serious consequences to that uh, where you have state and federal laws on a, on a collision course. I'd much rather resolve that legislatively than constitutionally uh, at, at the Supreme Court um, or, you know, through, through some other uh, conflict. So that's, that's my hope, and, and I would love to be part of a bipartisan coalition that would work to get that done. Beto O'Rourke is a Democratic congressman from El Paso, Texas. You can read more of Cato's work on immigration, trade, and the war on drugs at Cato.org.